Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we all are desperately in need of having our souls and our spirits nourished by the Word of God. Lord, I pray that today we may hear you speaking to us through your Word. We're not asking, Lord, for visions. We're not asking for ecstatic experiences. Lord, we just want your Word to be applied to our hearts and minds in a way in which we um, could better understand who you are and better understand what you're doing in us and better understand your will for us. And toward that end, we pray that you would be pleased as we look into the treasure of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, one of our favorite memories of a fam as a family is going to Maine and through some connections we had, uh, we had decided to uh, ride down in a whitewater raft experience on the Kennebec River. And uh, it indeed was all that we had hoped it would be. It is one of my favorite memories of a vacation. We have a guide assigned to our raft. There's some instruction given. There's some equipment put on. And so then we launch right below a dam on the river. They know exactly how much water is going to be released. It's the same every time. And so this guide was giving directions to us, telling the right side to paddle, telling the left side to paddle, or don't paddle, or paddle backwards, or whatever it was. And we navigated right from the start. You go into rapids that are either class three, class four, even a class five rapids. It is excitement beyond description. And there were times when you're riding in that raft, it is coming at you so quickly. There are directions being given to you what to do. There were times where you just said, do nothing. Nobody's paddling. We are just swept away by the power of that river through these big boulders going down through these ra uh, rapids. There were other times when she said, paddle hard, left, 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 left. And so we're all just, mm, just giving it all you got to try to steer that raft so that it hits the rapid at the right place so that everybody gets down we're not dumped out or hit sideways on one of those massive boulders. It seems to me as I look back on that experience, there is this combination of two things that were going on there. There were times where we just sat and just felt the power of that river just pushing us and driving us down through that gorge. There were other times in which we were just trying with all we could to steer and guide that boat. But let me tell you something, never did we ever attempt to try to turn that boat around and go the opposite way up the river. Just impossible on the first part of the river. The latter two-thirds of the river is the lazy, hazy river. You're just coasting down there. There's not much going on. In light of this, as I've been thinking about the idea of that analogy, I've been trying to think about how that perhaps helps us in reviewing where we've been in a series in which we looked at the idea of seeking God, asking for God to revive our hearts, and looking at this idea of making sure we have a balanced approach to what I would call maintaining or sustaining this idea of the work of God reviving our hearts. A revival, according to Robert Coleman, who wrote the great book on evangelism years ago, said this, revival is that strange and sovereign work of God in which he visits his own people, 
restoring, reanimating, and releasing them into the fullness of his blessings. That's an interesting definition of revival. It seems to me on the one hand, on one side of the equation, it's true. You have God bringing about this idea of reanimating and, and uh, ref refreshing and restoring in the work of his people. It is something that sovereignly he does. There's no question about it. On the other hand, on the other side of the equation, God's people are responsible. And so we've been calling uh, uh, ourselves and to consider the fact that we're to humble ourselves before God, confess our sins to God, be honest with him, to repent and to clear our consciences and to uh, follow the Spirit's leading by obeying Christ and forgiving those who've, who uh, we, who've sinned against us and uh, living in sexual purity and dealing with whatever we have to deal with in our life. Now, as you go down through church history, there has been this tension between these two factors of God's responsibility and our responsibility as the people of God. Two contrasting movements, one of them emphasizing the one, the other emphasizing the other. These are the two extremes. And in your notes, you'll notice there in the introduction here, we're looking at the idea that for, for many years, there have been people who have been proponents of quietism, just the word quiet, ism. And that would teach that a believer was to adopt essentially a passive role in this idea of moving toward greater and greater holiness of life. So the approach would call for the idea of a complete surrender of oneself to God, relying on God to, to lead us into faithful living. So the motto of the quietism movement was something like this. They said, let go and let God. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Well, that's on one side of the equation, which would say what? Well, it's all God doing it. We just need to get out of the way and submit and let God have his way. The other group who would emphasize the exact opposite was what we call pietism, P-I-E-T-I-S-M, pietism. And the adherence of pietistic thinking would emphasize over and over again the strong importance of discipline in the Christian life. And so they would... Uh, Instead of being pacifists, they were people who emphasized the activist role we are to play in, in self-control, in, in diligent effort, in Christian growth. And so the Bible, obviously, let's be clear now, calls for both of these things, not just one and not just the other. But what we're trying to find now is a balance between both of these to find ourselves in the middle here. Uh, personal responsibility, yes, God's responsibility, yes, that is both need to be in place. I call it this, there needs to be aggressive paddling in the Christian life, and then there is passively relying on God to do what only God can do in the Christian life. Both are needed, both are necessary, and both are indeed biblical. Now we're going to answer the question this morning, what is our responsibility and what is God's responsibility when it comes to the idea of living out this process of revival? That is an ongoing working of God to invigorate us and to cause us to be indeed seeking him in a very vital and real way. 
What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? And I would say there's two elements or two principles involved. The first is this. We need to be aware of what the believer's role is in sanctification or becoming more and more set apart to holy living. We need to work out our salvation. <clears throat> You'll notice here in our text of scripture in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's important, of course, to remember that the audience to whom Paul is writing here is indeed verse 1 of chapter 1 are the saints. Saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi. Saints there means set apart ones. It's not a separate class of special, you know, um, um, elaborately accomplished Christians. No, this is believers. And so he's writing people who have already heard the gospel, responded to the gospel in simple faith and repentance, and they are now enjoying their salvation. He's writing to them as Christians. Verse 6 of chapter 1 acknowledged, Paul said, these are the people in whom God has begun a work in you already. And so his admonishment to them in verse 12 of chapter 2 is to work out the salvation that you have already experienced and are currently enjoying. He was not writing to call for them to work for their salvation. It's so important that you understand that. He is not saying, I am writing to you to encourage you to perform various good works or to perform various acts of piety. I'm not, calling, I'm not writing to you to undergo various religious rituals so that you might gain some sort of merit before God. He says, that's not why I'm writing you. They were already saved on the basis of grace through faith. And hear me out now, personal salvation is never the result of our own efforts. That is so important to know here. When we talk about doing good and working out our salvation, we're not talking about doing something to earn merit or to earn our salvation because the Bible says in Titus 3, 5, it, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done, but according to his mercy. We also know in the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2, that familiar text that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, so that there's no boasting. There's no way you can say, look what I've done, and that this is the reason God has saved me. No, not at all. You see, Paul's objective in this passage is not explaining how to be saved, He's rather admonishing those that he's writing who are Christians to focus their thoughts and attention and their efforts on the ongoing lifelong process now that's underway to produce gospel obedience in our life, to bring about the fruit of the gospel in our lives day by day by day. He's encouraging them to live out the implications of their salvation. So he's more emphasizing instead of this is how to be justified. No, he's not saying that how to be declared right with God. He's writing here's how to become more holy in your walk with God. Sanctification is what he's talking about. 
Now, Paul commanded these fellow believers who had confessed Jesus as master, confessed him as their Lord, to follow Jesus' example. He's trying to see, help them see what it means to live a life that pleases the Lord. And so he uses Jesus and his humility and his example of humble submission to the will of God there in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And so Paul mentions in verse 12, it's important that we obey. He says, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Obeyed. What does it mean to obey the Lord? It means to place oneself under what one has been hearing. That is, if you receive authoritative instruction, you take that instruction and you do it. You put it into practice. You listen to the word and then you do it. One evidence of true, genuine regeneration is the fruit of obedience. To the Roman church, Paul wrote that the purpose of his apostleship was to bring about the obedience produced by faith among all the Gentiles, chapter 1. It is Jesus who, in commissioning his apostles and his followers, demanded that they now observe all that I have commanded you. You see, the gospel itself is a command to be obeyed. Jesus said in the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, he says, repent and believe the gospel. That is a command. And so true believers are to place ourselves underneath the authority of Jesus Christ and we do his bidding. Not because we're trying to gain a relationship with him, that's because it's the opposite. We, having submitted ourselves to him, having come to faith in him, having repented of our sins, we are therefore not obeying because we're trying to be saved, what we're obeying because we have been saved. Big difference. So obedience to Christ is to be done whether or not someone in the human realm has watching you, whether or not they've noticed what you're doing, whether or not they are aware of what this obedience looks like, it doesn't make any difference. The obedience is really being rendered unto Christ. And Paul says, listen, you brothers and sisters who are there in Philippi, I'm not here watching you. I'm not keeping track of what all you're doing. And so I'm calling you to think through what it means to live a life that pleases Christ before his eyesight, before his his um, awareness every day. And what is that going to look like? Well, it means that we are going to, at some point, we need to humble ourselves. We need to think more about becoming concerned with the needs and the concerns and the issues of other people more than just wrapped up in our own life. Not just looking out for our own interests, he says in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 5, but be concerned about the interests of others. And involvement in that concerns is going to be something that we do in fear and trembling, he says in verse 12. Every single day, we live before the face of Jesus Christ. We live in his presence. And he's the one that we're called to serve. He's the one we're to have a sense of awe and reverential fear as we live before him that our lives are significant before him. 
And therefore, the lives that we live are to be lived in integrity. We're not just to be men pleasers. We're not just to be people who try to people please everyone, make them think that we're so good and trying to gain their praise or whatever. No, that's the wrong motivation. He says we're to live a life that is out of fear and respect for God, the God who saved us. And in, if you use the whitewater analogy, if we go back to that again, the whitewater rafting analogy, there's times when you're going down that massive river. I would call it a raging river at the beginning when there's so much rapids. We would paddle vigorously with a sense of awe at the speed at which we're going, the power exerted in the, in the water carrying that raft and the massive boulders that we didn't want to run into. There was a sense in which there's a sense of fear in riding on a, a raft like that. How many of you have ever been whitewater rafting? Okay, a couple of you know what I'm talking about. Well, this, there's a sense in which that kind of holy awe, not just being afraid of God, but of looking at him with respect and being, looking at him with great awe, it ought to result in us taking actions to do the things that we know are reverentially pleasing before him. For example, we're called to fight against sin. He says, resist the devil. Don't try to accommodate with him. Don't sit down and negotiate with him. Resist him, he says in James. We are to, Paul talks about beating his body. Now we're talk, talking about masochism here. I'm not talking about flail yourself till you bleed. That's not what I'm talking about here. But he says he beat his body into subjection lest he be disqualified from spiritual service. What's he saying? I really am doing whatever it takes to make sure that I don't go off course here in my spiritual walk. For some of us, it means that we need to be studying the scriptures, not just casually read them once a week. It means that we are called to prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, that's part of spiritual battle. There's a sense in which we're called to be witnessing, actually engaging people in conversation, mentioning what God has done in our hearts and lives, challenging people to think through the implications of what God is calling them to respond in the gospel. We are to flee temptation. These are all things that we need to what? We need to be paddling and exerting ourselves in the spiritual realm. And so I'm raising the question this morning on this first point, some of us need to pick up the paddle and get engaged. Hopefully you've been thinking about that the last several weeks we've been talking about some of these topics. Is that paddle the paddle of prayer for you? Some of it, maybe that's the paddle of humble service. You're so used to just going through life, doing whatever's easiest for you, not thinking about the needs of the people around you and your family or whatever, and the Lord is going to call you, listen here, keep your eyes on Christ, and you need to be much more engaged in serving other people and stop being so comfortable in only thinking about your own interests and things that you just want to do. Maybe some of us need to pick up the paddle of putting to death the deeds of the body. There's some areas of sin you need to deal with. Maybe for some of us, it's picking up the paddle of proclaiming the gospel. Actually speaking to someone about the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just 
smiling at people and saying, oh, you know, being friendly and nice, but there needs to be at some point praying the Lord would open a door where we actually share with them and engage with them about Jesus. Well, I don't know what it is, but I hope that you sense that that's part of what God is calling us to do here is to keep at those things. Now you say, well, brother, you don't know how many times I have been pulling at that paddle and I'm worn down. There are times in which I don't think I can hold on to the paddle anymore because I've got blisters on my hands. And maybe you're a person who has become discouraged because that's all the Christian life has become to you is I need to work out my salvation. Work, work, work out my salvation. And so when you look at your life, you begin to look at yourself and you say, well, what a failure I am. I'm not loving God like I need to love him. I'm not loving my neighbor as I need to love, as I already love myself. And so you, after a while, you, you say, well, I intend to be a selfless person. I, I desire to have my heart more concerned with others and to serve them. And to, but then I look at what happens in my heart in every any given week, and I find myself coming out of my heart as impatient spirit. I've got so many angry words that come out of my mouth. Next thing you know, I'm criticizing people and all these remarks that I never intended to say. My friend, here's a word of encouragement to you. As we look at the second point of our outline this morning, we're looking at God's role in making us holy. The working in of salvation. Here's a great quote. Point A in your outline is, God supplies what he demands. God supplies what he demands. He says in verse 12 that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's good news. That's gospel. We know it's absolutely essential that we live a life of obedience. In other words, we know that it, we are to what? We're to do the paddling. Some of us have known that for many years in our life. But notice what? Yes, along with the fact that we are responsible to be applying to ourselves the, the areas of discipline in the Christian life. But look at verse 13 where it says, God himself is at work in us, enabling us by his grace to live transformed lives, to, to be humble and to live, to be an obedient child of God. And so Paul urges us to this act of obedience, but he does so with confidence that the only reason we're ever going to make progress in the pursuit of becoming like Christ is that God is empowering us, God is enabling us to do what he commands. I'm going to use another analogy here. Forgive me for all this analogy on the water, but it seems to work pretty well. If you properly operate a sailboat, which you would never want to ask me to do, maybe Dave Tedesco, but don't ask me to operate a sailboat. But I'm told that if a sailor is operating it correctly, he has to apply various adjustments on these ropes that are all over this boat. And so you've got to pull this one in at certain times. You've got to let that one out at certain times. And you have to uh, hold the tiller back here and you're guiding the rudder to make sure that the boat is being directed into the correct position. So there's a, there's a lot that you need to be thinking about when you're sailing. But let me just make it clear here. 
sailing is not merely or just boiling it down as only human maneuverings within a boat. Because what? Successful sailing relies upon the power of the wind. Right? A sailor's knowledge and his efforts are futile apart from the energy of the wind. That's why sometimes when you go sailing, they have motors they build into these sailboats now because you can get a day when there's no wind and you're stuck. What's the point? All of our efforts are dependent upon God and his enabling grace. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? He says, you're to abide in me. You're to remain close with me and commune with me. Why? Because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15. And listen to how this worked out in Paul's life. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul shares a little bit about himself there. In verse 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm a person who's involved in Christian ministry. I'm a person who saw the raised, risen Christ. And so I've been made a part of this amazing group of people. I am who I am. And his grace did not prove vain. In other words, my life has been changed by the grace of God. But I labored even more than all of them. I have been very involved in ministry, putting myself out there, giving my time, giving my efforts, seeking to be involved in other people's lives to point them to Christ. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see him talking about both of those things now going on? It is God's grace at work in him that enabled him to do what he had been doing. Let's take a moment and just consider once again this phrase in verse 13 of Philippians 2. That little phrase says, it is God who is at work in you. God who is at work in you. There is so much to be encouraged in this phrase, my friends. God does not save us and then leave us to fend for ourselves. We can find so much encouragement to know that God is always at work in his children. He never sleeps. He is tirelessly active in accomplishing his work in your life. And the work of salvation that he began, Philippians 1, 6, is the work that he's what? Going to bring it to completion. It's not just that God is active, not just that God is persistent, but God is effective. The word he uses here in verse 13 is the Greek word from, called energeo, energeo, which you can hear, that's where we get the English word energy, and I hate to say it because I know what you're going to be thinking. It's really energizer. Sorry, I don't want to go in that direction. There's a crazy commercial. But anyway, energizer. God is the energizer. He has more than enough power to achieve his purposes in his people. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, again, Paul is so confident in this power of God at work in him and in his people. He says in Colossians 1 verse 28, he describes again his ministry he says, I am 
putting all kinds of energy and time and effort into preaching Christ, to proclaiming Christ. I warn people. I'm teaching all the folks that I can possibly teach. And I'm seeking in order to present everyone complete in Christ. He says, for this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power or his working, which mightily works in me. You see how that works? He's saying, I'm doing all this investment, but it's really God working in me. Giving him motivation, giving him endurance, giving him a sense of, of passion about what he's doing. So God not only if effectively works, God is working effectively and God is working effectually. What do I mean by that? He can't be deflected from his course. He is going to accomplish his purpose. He cannot fail. Those whom God has justified, he will what? Sanctify. And those whom he sanctified, he will glorify. You can be confident of it. It reminds me of that great text in Ephesians 3.20 when Paul prays for those who he's writing there in Ephesus and he says, you know, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine according to the power that what? Energizes in us or works in us. Here's another way to say it. He is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. Like a mighty Kennebec River. If you ever get on that raft and you go down the Kennebec River, there is no question in the mind of anybody who's ever ridden in that raft that you would end up at the extraction point at the end of that ride. That river has a force that once you start, boom, it is going to make sure you get down there one way or another. And clearly, I think what is this is God so works in such an efficacious way. In other words, his work he is going to accomplish, bringing you to the point where you are made like Christ as much as you can be made like Christ as a human being. He's going to do it. He will complete that work. That's encouragement, my friend. It's encouragement. And what is his purpose in doing all this work in his children? Notice in that verse 13, he wants to make us like Christ. Make us obedient, humble, selfless people who are willing to lay down our lives for other people. You say, well, maybe that, that work begins in us and we begin to see some changes in us. And so as we see ourselves moving toward those goals, maybe you see some progress. My friend, it's very subtle, but it might be something you might be, begin to think in your own heart. Look how far I've come. Oh, my, my, my. I'm making such better choices now. I'm making right choices now. Oh, I, I'm, I'm showing the right stuff. My friend, the danger is we might swell up with pride and we might at some point undermine God's purposes. So Paul makes it very clear, whatever progress we make in holiness of life, it will never 
be a legitimate basis for making any kind of arrogant boasting about the progress that we've made. Every good choice, every good action that we make is a result of God's gracious inward work. Not only just enabling us to make better choices, but in giving us the desire to do it. God takes away everything that you could possibly think that you could take credit for. He says, listen here, God is the one that's been working in you to do these things. God is ceaselessly and effectually at work in his children. And whatever signs of obedience are seen in your life, it's because of what? God's transformation through his spirit, through the word, through the, the way in which he works in us. It's all of God. Before we were saved, according to Romans chapter 8, we are described as being hostile toward God, unable to subject our minds to God's word, and unable to please God. That's what we were like before we were regenerated. And when God, by his grace, makes us alive in Christ, he gives us new desires, he gives us new abilities to do his bidding, and the heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, and God, by his grace, continually then works in his people to give us the will and the ability to obey him and serve him, become more like him. Would you notice one more thing in this text in Philippians 2, 13? You say, well, why is God doing all these things? Well, he wants to make us like Christ. But there's one more encouragement here as we try to battle against our selfish flesh. God continually and persistently does this gracious work in our hearts, not because we deserve it, and not because he finds the promising response in what we're doing and how we're responding in our lives. No, because his work in us pleases him. God is passionately pursuing the things that please him. And that's a good thing. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us that God works in his people for his own good pleasure. It's part of the mystery of what God is doing. But he says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons according to what? His good pleasure. God is pleased when he sees the way in which he's at work in us and we become more like Christ. He is pleased with that. He delights in that. And God's work of grace gives us power to not make the same choices that we've made over and over and over again. And to see ourselves having a desire to move in a different direction in our life. And when you look back over your life and you say, well, wow, this is where I used to be and this is where I am now, but I got a long way to go. That's true. But you can say, can't you, that in the end, when you think of getting to where you want to be and where you long to be someday, in the end, all praise, all credit, all glory, all honor will go to what? Jesus Christ. 
You know, I have nothing to brag about. I have nothing to boast about. Nobody has anything to boast about except Christ and his grace and his working and his mercy upon us. So I want us to take to heart, if we will today, let's make sure we stay balanced. Let's never forget there is great power, there's great working going on as the river of God's grace and love and his Holy Spirit and the word of God will carry you downstream toward that final destiny. But in the meantime, there is some paddling we need to be doing. Both need to continue on. Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect on the wonders of this rich portion of your word, we realize we've just begun to scratch the surface here. There's so much packed in here. But Lord, we know that we're speaking to two different sides of a coin here. We need to find that balance, Lord. Sometimes some of us need to be urged to be more engaged in doing the things you call us to do, Lord, to stop sitting back and waiting for something to happen. But Lord, we need to be pursuing Christ and doing the things that he calls us to do in a very faithful and consistent way, but to be engaged. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of those who need to hear that, that they would begin to do so. And I pray also, Lord, for those who perhaps have been doing that and they're weary and perhaps for some reason are discouraged and uh, they have begun to think it's all up to them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us once again of how graciously you are at work and how your working is so effective in us. Lord, prevent us, we pray, from being just people who do what we do out of sheer discipline. Help us, Lord, to delight in doing your will, to delight in reading your word, to delight in, in, uh, in being in prayer, to delight in sharing the gospel, to delight in becoming more like Christ. So Lord, would you give us a new increased willingness to seek you and to serve you and to become more like Christ, whatever that means. Lord, have your way in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.